Well, this morning we are wrapping up our series on the life of David. Uh, we have been going through First and Second Samuel as we've been looking at this ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. Now, you'll remember that the first two chapters of First Samuel began with the Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat on top where God's people were said to meet with God. And that was at Shiloh. And there we had a failed priest. And, and this failed priest and this Ark of the Covenant, they were in Shiloh. Now the failure of Eli, that priest that failed, was also met with God's promise. He promised in 1 Samuel 2.35, saying, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, God not only promised to build a sure house for this failed priest, you, you, you'll remember that in 1 Samuel 8, Israel, they had rejected judges, and they wanted a king like the nations. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 15, we were told that what they desired was a king who would bring them justice internally. And also one who would save them. They would, he would go out and fight their enemies for him so that both those external relationships and internal relationships would be brought peace or shalom through this king. And Israel longed for peace from their enemies outside. They longed for peace with their brothers inside. In fact, if you look at the history of Israel, you'll see that that's a lot of their problems. Israel thought Tutal Saul was the king that they desired, but he quickly failed. You'll remember that he sinned against God. And then God, in response, took his spirit from Saul, and he gave it to David, anointing David, who was a shepherd amongst sheep, to be raised up, to be his king, God's king, or Messiah, that word that we find translated in the New Testament, Christ. And so this man would be God's Christ. So now we have, in the beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, a failed priest and a failed king, but a promise of a future priest and a future king whom God would build a sure house for. Well, the rest of 2 Samuel unfolds Really, the, if you look at it in 1 Samuel all the way up to 11, or to 2 Samuel 11, we find that David is looking like an absolute hero. He looks like he is the answer to all of these failures. I mean, he established justice in the land as a righteous king. He even uh, finds that God makes an eternal covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7, promising to give his offspring an eternal throne over his kingdom. David looks like he is the man. He's the answer. But the wheels come off in 2 Samuel 11, don't they? And you'll remember that there, uh, David doesn't look like an extraordinary king anymore. He looks like an extraordinary sinner. He actually commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband Uriah, a righteous man, to cover up his sin. And, and if you read from 11 to 20, what we find is an unfolding of all of the horrible consequences of the sin of David. And so all of a sudden, this man that looked like the answer to the failures of leadership looks like he is repeating the cycle. And so you're wondering about that promise that God made to David. Is he going to keep his promises because David too has failed? Well, 
What's interesting is, when you come to the end, end of the book of 2 Samuel, you have these chapters, beginning in, in chapter 21, that, that almost look like they're out of place, and they're not necessarily chronological. I mean, uh, you'll remember that 22 is taken what se- from what seems to be uh, an episode in the middle of uh, David's life, a good time, whenever he uh, is rescued from Saul. And, and then chapter 23, we find the last words of David, where David is uh, basically saying, here are my last words. After all of these horrible things that you just read about have taken place, including the good things, but the bad things too, And you'll remember that in chapter 23, even after his life is shown to be a hot mess due to his horrific sins, he still trusts that God will keep his promise of a future Messiah that will bring blessings to God's people. You kind of wish the book just ended in chapter 23, but it doesn't. And those first words of chapter 24 that we began last week, they really are ominous words. You remember, it begins with God's anger being kindled again against Israel. And David seems to be in the midst of this as he calls for a census. Because now he's putting his confidence in the swords of the men of Israel. You remember in chapter 17 when he was fighting Goliath, he refused Saul's sword. Because he said, "Uh, God, I am here to come in his power. I, I don't win with sword and spear, but in the power of the Lord. And yet at the end, he's counting up his swords. When he was younger, he refused them. Now he counts them. And God sends a wrath of a plague on his people for this census. But don't miss the main point of this last story that we're going to see here today. And it's this. Taking notes, write this down. The God of mercy meets with his people at the mercy seat where his king priest intercedes for his people. The God of mercy meets with his people at the mercy seat where his king priest intercedes for his people. Now, 2 Samuel 24, uh, this is actually, for all the horror that it might bring on as you see the angel of Yahweh coming and and slaying 70,000 people because of the sins of Israel, because of the horrific scene, you might think this is a, a bad story, solely a bad story. But this story, I believe, is full of good news, and that's what we're going to see today. But let's pray and ask God's help as we begin. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, we are praying that your Holy Spirit would help us. And Father, we know that you are for us. In fact, even now as we pray, it is Jesus Christ himself who is interceding for us. He is our great priest king. And so Father, as we come, we know that you are willing and you want to help your people to hear from you. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to want to hear from you in the way that you are going to speak to us. Lord, do that for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. So our first point is this. David confesses again and Verse 17, he confesses again. Now, David's first confession in in chapter or verse 10 was followed, you'll remember, by the prophet Gad showing up. And, And it climaxes this scene in God showing mercy as the angel of Yahweh is approaching Jerusalem. He has been slaying people from Dan to Beersheba, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And it's at that moment that God cries out, it is enough, and his mercy is displayed. Well, verses 17 to 25 seem to repeat this pattern. In fact, I think it's on purpose that the pattern's repeated, that there is a confession and then an action and Gad showing up, because I believe that what we find here is actually a replay of the same event from a human perspective. You know, the most important thing in this chapter is the mercy of God being highlighted. But now we're ready to see what was happening in real time with David. 
It kind of looks like a flashback of the moment that we read about leading up to verse 16, but from the perspective of King David. Now catch what verse 17 says. Look there with me again. Here's what he says. He says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. We looked at this last week, but let's not forget that this this chapter launches with God and his anger being kindled against Israel for their sins. And yet again, you notice here that David looks like the good shepherd offering to lay down his life, his life and the life of his fathers for his sheep. Now, God's mercy preceded David's confession here. But David's mercy reflects the heart of God for his people. And David, he looks so much like Moses interceding for Israel in Exodus chapter 32 when God's anger threatened to to wipe out all of Israel because when he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they had already broken the first two. They were worshiping that cow. See, David's mercy is here reflecting the heart of God, but it also, he looks a lot like the intercession of Moses when he is putting himself and his life between God and his people. He's saying, let let me rescue them from your just wrath. David uniquely asks God here to strike him and his father's house if it would push back the wrath that God rightly had on Israel. See, David understands that God's justice is perfect. He doesn't say that, that God's justice should not be met. What he says, though, is my great love for them wants to push back that justice and absorb it myself. You ever had that kind of experience where you've seen the suffering of someone and maybe you've seen it on the news and you thought about it one way, but you saw it in a child, your child, and it hits you in another way. Uh, There was one time where I was with Benjamin and I was running around. He was probably about five years old. We were at the grocery store and uh, I was running late and, um, and, and John was there and he was trying to help and push the door closed. And all of a sudden I saw Benjamin's face just go white. And he was looking at me and then all of a sudden you could see tears welling up and I looked down at his little hand and it was literally in the door, right? And the door was shut on it. And my first thought was, Oh, Lord, I hope his hand's okay. Like, he's supposed to be a professional pitcher. He's got to be hurt. Like, what's this going to do to his future? Oh, like, my good days are gone. Maybe you could take my hand instead, Lord, right? Like, I don't want him to suffer in this way. Like, could I just take the pain? I mean, all of those, like, in a second, and while I'm opening the door, and he pulls his hand out, and I'm just so grateful that kids are made of rubber, right? I mean, his hand literally just kind of was, like, bent, and then, like, just sort of popped back into place. But it's in those moments when somebody you love is, is hurt or pain or in danger that you're just like, let me, let me rescue them. And I think David has that kind of impetus. But here it says, is the king of his people. I mean, what good leadership that you have a king that wants to lay down his life for his people, for God's people. And so he begs God to show mercy to them. Notice God's response in verse 18, though. Second, the prophet tells David to build an altar where God showed mercy. He tells David to build an altar where God showed 
mercy in verse 18. Now, you'll remember that David's first confession of sin was followed by Gad bringing the word of wrath. Like, choose one of three options. How do you want to do this? There's going to be a judgment that comes. And, of course, uh, David says, just not, don't leave me in the hands of men. Like, you choose because your mercy is great. And so he says, I'm going to send a plague. Well, in this second confession in verse 17, it's followed by Gad showing up again. But this time he brings a word of mercy. And it's tied to David building this altar. Uh, Look with me again at verse 18 at what he says. It says this. And Gad came that day to David. And he said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord, to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. These last verses of the end of 2 Samuel spent a lot of time focusing on this threshing floor of Arana. In fact, you might be reading these verses, and if you're thinking about the good way to end a story, you might think, why does he spend so much time on this piece of real estate? I mean, what's the big deal? Like, real estate isn't that exciting. Maybe you remember in 2 Samuel 5, a connected story, David took Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And it became the city of David. And then the first thing he does in chapter 6 is he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion. Of course, it was a little bit difficult to get it there, but he got it there. And, And that would be the city of David, but also the city of God, where God dwelt with God's king. See, David ushered in this Ark of the Covenant. But here, Arana seems to be a wealthy Jebusite, of those Jebusites that were living on Mount Zion before David took it. But he's still there, and he, he looks like he's not an enemy. He's, he's doing well. He's wealthy. He still has land on Zion. And he remained in Jerusalem through all that has happened since then. And so God commanded David to build an altar on Arana's land. Now, the value of this real estate, it isn't just because it's on a mountain, right? You know that mountain real estate's good. It goes for a high price, especially here in the valley. But you know what they say about the value of real estate? Value really is about location, location, location. And the location is important for other reasons. Uh, Let me give you just three factors that make this location very interesting. First, it's the place where God is presently displaying his mercy. You remember how this event went down back in verse 16? God has killed 70,000 Israelites. The angel of, the, of Yahweh, he's drawing near to Jerusalem, and it's at this threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite that it appears that God screams out, it is enough, causing the angel to stand down. Now, here's where I think Chronicles can help us. It gives us a little bit of a window into the, the purpose, the meaning, the significance of this place. Because second, It's also the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. You remember that story back in Genesis chapter 22? Well, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 3, 1 to 5, tells us you need to look look back there because that that story has an impact on this place. See, we, we find that this threshing floor is on Mount Moriah. It's the same mountain where God called Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice before the angel of the Lord came. And it was there that the angel of the Lord prevented Abraham from offering up Isaac as a sacrifice by providing a ram 
as a substitute for him. Well, hold on, it gets better. Those are two pretty significant events. But third, this is also, we are told in 2 Chronicles 3, the place where in the future Solomon will build the temple that houses the Ark of the Covenant where priests would offer sacrifices daily and annually on the Day of Atonement on behalf of the people of God. Now just think about that. God showed mercy in the past to Abraham's son Isaac and to Abraham there. He is presently showing mercy to David and Israel on this spot. And in the future, the temple will be built there with the Ark of the Covenant at the center of its worship, with its mercy seat in the middle of the life of the people of God where God meets with his people. Of course, you know that that lid of the covenant was considered to be the footstool of God's throne. It is a place that is considered to be a mercy seat where God's people meet with God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, you'll remember there were sacrifices uniquely offered there where the, the priest would go once a day behind this curtain and he would offer the sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Why? Because we have a picture on this mercy seat that stood at the center of Israel's worship and life that said that there is mercy to be had between God and his people, but there's always this blood sacrifice and this curtain that are coming between. And why did they have to offer sacrifices to come before their God? Well, Leviticus 17.11 uh, gives us, uh, I think, a picture of this. Um, that's where some of you might need to think about the way that you're ordering your steak when you go out for a steak. If you do that kind of thing, sorry, vegetarians, you should do that. But if you don't, when you go for a steak, you know, you want to make sure you don't get it too rare, right? What's too rare? Well, if it, you know, moves when you poke it, that's probably too rare. But the reason that you don't want to do that is because you can't eat meat, what, with the blood still in it. Now, what, what he means by that is, you know, we're not eating live animals. Uh, probably something that was done in, in other pagan cultic uh, practices. But here we find in Leviticus 17, 11, us being told this. He says, don't eat meat with the blood still in it, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, David asked God to strike him instead of the people as a good shepherd. But God here calls for an altar where sacrifices would be made to satisfy God's just wrath for his people. Now, Hebrews 9.22 goes on to say this. Indeed, under the law, almost Everything is purified with blood, and without blood, there is no forgiveness, no mercy, no reconciliation, no restoration, no atonement without the blood. I think one thing that God wants his people to know is that forgiveness is actually costly. Sin against God is costly. We don't want to think about the largesse of God's mercy in such a way that we put that on sin and say, therefore, sin is not a big deal. But that's not the way that God speaks about it or the Bible speaks about it. In fact, the fact that it requires blood tells us that it is something that is very costly. That's why God tells David to build an altar so that he might find the mercy of God. We're all familiar with the Roman road to salvation, right? Uh, Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, this is good theology. We are all sinners. 
But I think that sometimes what we can do is we can have some good theology, but take it in some weird directions that are not healthy. You know, every human left to themselves is a sinner by nature and by choice. So we are all sinners, but we know how our hearts, even Christian hearts, can actually bend and misuse really beautiful scriptures that are really important to us, like the reality of who we are outside of Christ, that we're all sinners. You know, sometimes you hear people say we're all sinners and all, and taken one way, that's really biblical, right? We are all sinners, very true. But I think that there's another way that people can use that, that it's not biblical. They spin it in a little bit different angle. You know, some, of, some of those who you've heard talk this way, you've heard people say, you know, we're all sinners and all. And by that, they, they use this line to actually justify themselves. They mean to presume on the mercy of God. So, for instance, you might have some people when they say that, presume on the mercy of God in a number of different ways. Uh, they mean something like, you know, thinking sin isn't a big deal, is how I understand that. I don't think sin is a big deal because we are all sinners. Or it could be that, like, we're all sin. I mean, sin's everywhere. It's like all we know. Or it could be, you're not better than me. We're all sinners and all. Or who are you to judge me? We're all sinners. Or who am I to meddle in the affairs of another self-professing Christian entrenched in sin because we are all sinners? Or how can any of us have real hope with our sins given there is so much sin in the world? You've seen Fox News. There's no hope. There, there, there are all kinds of ways that we can take this and spin it in the wrong way. And maybe you don't say this out loud. But it is a small voice in your heart this morning that perhaps even in this moment is fighting to justify a dating relationship that's mired in sexual sin or a lingering bitterness against your spouse that, that it's okay or, or cheating on a, a test at school. I mean, everybody else is doing it. We all sin and all. And when guilt sets in, you think, you know, we're all sinners and all, so it must be Okay, don't miss this. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the gospel, that sin's just okay. See, the good news isn't that we're all sinners and all. God is good, let's go home. No, God's incredible mercy should not mute or silence our sense of the gravity of our sins. It should lead us to faith in a merciful God, confessing our sins, turning from our sins, running and worshiping God all the way. See, that's why I, I think the end of Samuel spends so much time on this real estate deal. He says it matters how sinners approach a holy God. It matters where they do it, and they need to know that the story that they are stepping into, this mercy, it's not about them. It's about something that preceded them in Abraham, that is happening now, and that is going to be working itself into the future through the people of Israel, and finally into, guess what, us who are here today hearing the gospel preached. This is a big thing that God is doing on this piece of real estate. Third, David purchases the real estate for the temple fair and square. David purchased the real estate for the temple fair and square. Now, as the angel of the Lord is striking down the Israelites, it might seem like a strange time for a real estate deal. Don't forget where we're at. And, and so in the midst of this, like, terror is breaking out. 
David is doing what? I love this picture. He's obeying God's voice. Maybe that's something you just need to be reminded of today. The world might seem like chaos. Here's what you're called to do today. Be faithful. What if everything gets better tomorrow? What are you called to do? Be faithful. And so here he is, obeying the voice of God in verses 19 to 24. And and look what it says. Here's what God's word says. So David went up at Gad's word, and as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build your altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. And all this, O king Arana, gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, the Lord your God accepts you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I love the picture here again of David's immediate obedience. David went up at God's word as the word of the Lord commanded. This is the king at his best, obeying his God. This is humanity at its best, as we are obeying the voice of God, our creator. Of course, this is also what the love of God looks like. You'll remember in 1 John, we're told that those who love God obey his commandments. So if you're not a real estate agent, you might be wondering this morning why so much time is giving to this real estate deal. And why didn't David take Arana's offer to give him the land for free. Did you notice that? He says, I'll, I'll give you all the land. I'll even give you the, the stuff for the sacrifice. You don't need to worry about yourself about any of the details. I'll make it easy for you. Easy worship. And why didn't he take him up on that offer? Well, commentator Robert Bergen explains it this way. He says, in purchasing the land from Arana and then utilizing it for the sacrifice to the Lord, David was apparently following Torah guidelines regarding the dedication of land to the Lord, as we find in Leviticus 27. And when he did this, the land became permanently holy and was set aside in perpetuity for priestly use, a situation completely consistent with the site's subsequent use for the temple of the Lord. Now, four quick things we we find here about this place, this, this parcel of land that that David has, has bought and purchased for long-term use, for priestly use. Now, first, the altar would be built on the exact spot, don't forget this, of where God chose to display his mercy on the thr- threshing floor back in verse 16. It was there that when he, he saw the angel coming near, in that place in Jerusalem, he said, it is enough. Second, sacrifices would be offered on this altar. It was an altar for sacrifices. Third, David's obedient sacrifice would avert the sin-induced plague from the people. And fourth, David had to purchase the land at a fair price to dedicate that land for priestly use. See, David purchased the land that would be used for sacrifices that would be made daily and annually for the priesthood of Israel. But take note of how the book of Samuel ends with King David offering up sacrifices like a priest would do in verse 25. Here's what it says. We find, fourth, that David acts as a priest king. 
Not just a king, but a priest king. And this is what it says. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. As we think about this, let me begin with just a quote to clarify as we move forward. Uh, John Woodridge says this in his commentary. I found it helpful. He makes this clarification. He says this. He says, The subtle but important point in these verses is that while the altar and the sacrifices were no doubt very important, even necessary, the account has been framed in such a way that excludes the idea that the sacrifices caused the plague to stop. The Lord did that at the appointed time. Text wants to just show that God is sovereign over these events. In other words, God didn't need sacrifices as much as the people needed them to remind them of their sins. Now, David offers burnt offerings. You'll find that explained in Leviticus 1. Burnt offerings, uh, they were an offering that was offered to atone for human sin in such a way that you propitiated the wrath of God. Just a big word for absorbing or assuaging or taking on God's wrath that you deserved. He took it in full. It's not that it just disappeared. It's that he took it. And he did that so that we could be atoned with God. We could have right relationship with God. We made it one with him. Or these people in Israel. We also notice the peace offerings in Leviticus 3 that he's offered here. Uh, they celebrate peace with God. Shalom. That comes along with all of those blessings that flow from having peace with God. You'll notice that Samuel begins with the pursuit of a leader who would save Israel from their enemies, from, them, from themselves bringing justice, but also the wrath of God. See, Jesus would later come to fulfill what this altar and the sacrificial system that it points to only foreshadowed. We need a, a greater priest and a greater king. And I think Samuel wants us to see that. We, we need one who is greater, who would lay down his life as the good shepherd to draw his people near to God with his once-for-all sacrifice. It's hard to miss how David points to Jesus Christ here at the end of Samuel. I mean, you should like just automatically get like all kinds of Christological goosebumps, right? Because you see Jesus everywhere. You just think about it. And here we find that Samuel highlights these realities that he even didn't see the significance of, the author of this book. You'll notice that in this story, God promised judgment for three days, but by the third day, mercy shows up because of the sacrifices offered by King David on this very place where priests would offer up sacrifices for Israel. See, David is the Messiah who prepared the way for David's greater son. Still, David is a sinner, though. He, too, is in need of God's grace. He's not the Messiah that Israel needed. They needed a greater Messiah. He could not lay down his life to satisfy God's wrath. See, in fact, God's anger would be kindled again and again against Israel as you follow through the book of Kings. And, and the more and more they sin, the more and more sacrifices that have to be offered up daily and annually in that, uh, that sacrifice of atonement for the people of God to perpetuate God's wrath. See, the book opened with a failed priest and the promise of a future priest for whom God would build a sure house. We also saw a failed king and Saul and a promise of a future king from the line of David 
for whom God would build a sure house. And Jesus, I believe, is the priest king that Samuel says we've been waiting for. Jesus. He came with a new and a better covenant and laid down his life for his people to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and also to absorb the wrath of God that we we deserved once and for all. So Hebrews 10, 11 to 12 says it this way. Thinking of the priestly system, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And yet, God's anger has not been fully satisfied. Sacrifice after sacrifice, and God's people are still sin sick. They still have not been healed from their sin nature. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. God's perfect justice and mercy meet at the cross where he willingly laid down his life, his perfectly obedient life for sinners and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God where he sits even now. The modern equivalent of he sat down is he dropped the mic, right? Like he's done, like I'm out. Like I can't do any better, I can't do anything else that's gonna impress you. I have done it fully at the cross. He has ascended to sit next to the Father. You know, if you're a non-Christian, you might be listening to this story this morning and thinking to yourself, who are God's enemies? These ones who are waiting that day for when his, his wrath shall be poured out. Those enemies that are going to be made a footstool for his feet. Well, obviously not every enemy is the same, but all enemies are enemies of God and await the justice and the judgment of God. I think that's a great question. Well, the New Testament tells us in 1 John 3. He says that those who are are truly believers are those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in the biblical Jesus, the Jesus that we preach week in and week out. And, And not only that, they love one another. They love people they are living in faithful, committed Christian community with. That's what a Christian looks like. Those who are not living in those relationships, who have not put their faith in Christ in this way, uh, they would say these are not people who have the hope of Jesus Christ coming back and the life that awaits them and the restoration that is promised them. So if that's not you, let me just encourage you. Don't leave here without putting your faith in this Christ. If you're live streaming, email in, let us know. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to be a Christian, how you can come to a place where you can be baptized and join a local church like Trinity Bible Church to become part of us, a community of the people of God who are excited about the return of Jesus because it is a good day for us. We are not those enemies that are gonna be made a footstool. We are his friends and the children of God in Christ. But Christian, this text is for you too. I'm just wondering this morning, as we've been talking about the mercy of God, and last week we've been talking about the mercy of God, we continue to talk about the mercy of God, and yet in all of that, has your heart, have you found it impenetrable to be encouraged by the heart of God for the people of God? Are you not stirred by the fact that God's heart is a heart of mercy for you, even at the cost of his very own son? You know, we were children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. When Paul says in verses 4 to 5, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. The Messiah is by grace that you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, have you you grown cold in your thoughts of the mercy of God? Do you not realize where you were? We were enemies of God destined for wrath. And yet the gospel says that you are no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God. He's not trying to protect the children from you anymore. (laughs) He's trying to protect you from the enemies. He is no longer against you. His full force is not for you in his wrath. It is actually for you in mercy. So that the higher that his wrath for sinners could be raised, his mercy was raised all the more for you. I don't hear warmth. Gospel warmth over the mercy of God. Jesus, he is good to his people. He is good for his people. And those who have experienced mercy, Jesus says, blessed are the mercy, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I would also say, blessed are the merciful, because they have received mercy. And Christian, maybe your heart has grown cold towards God's mercy because you've lost sight of Jesus' work, hear me, for you right now. Maybe when you think about the gospel, and this is really easy to do, you get sort of the gospel locked and loaded, you know, God, man, Christ response. I know what God has done in justifying me, but I have lost sight of the fact that that same Christ is at work now in my life. That that same mercy that was displayed at the cross is always operative for me. Hebrews and the book of 1 John has some encouraging thoughts about the nature of what Jesus is doing for us now. Did you know that Jesus is your greater priest, king, and advocate? Do you know what that means? Yes, he offered the perfect sacrifice, is the perfect intercessor and priest for us. But he is still acting for us. Hebrews describes Christ as our intercessor right now. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save us and you to the uttermost. Who is that? Those who draw near to God through Christ. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me ask you this. When is always? When is not always? Never. He always lives to make intercession for you. I love in Gentle and Lowly by Dane Artland. He writes of this verse saying this. Intercession is that moment-by-moment application of God's atoning work, of Christ's atoning work for you. See, the Son's intercession, it does not reflect the coolness of the Father. Did you see how God was acting when he... It was his mercy that that created mercy and caused mercy for us, even before his King David. See, the son's intercession, it does not reflect the coolness of the father, but the sheer warmth of the son. See, Christ does not intercede because the father's heart is tepid toward us, but because the son's heart is also full 
toward us. But the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. Did you know that that's the posture of the Father towards those who are in the Son? That He is joyfully looking to help His saints. Just think about that. Jesus, He always lives right now. Jesus constantly appeals to the Father for us based on His atoning life, death, resurrection, ascension, where He now dropped the mic, is sitting next to the Father. And it's such that we are so right with God in Christ that we have access to the Father's throne as adopted children. Now look, I love a lot of you. But you don't have the same access to my house as my children do, right? If I show up one day and one of you are sitting in my kitchen eating my Frosted Flakes, I'm going to think something's up, right? Like, who let you in here? I love you, but like, let's talk about like boundaries, right? They're boundaries. And here we find that we are invited into the throne room of God. We were enemies. You think enemies have access like that? No. Do friends? Like, kind of, but not really. But what about children? Yeah, children do. Jesus constantly appeals the Father for us. While you sleep tonight, Jesus is interceding for you. While you were playing Halo, I don't know what the video games are today, but while you're playing video games, God is inter, Jesus is interceding for you. When you are at work, not thinking about Jesus, Jesus is interceding for you. When you're playing, Jesus is always interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you even when you are not interceding for yourself. And he does that always. But what if you sin? Where is Jesus in that moment? Do we just say we're all sinners and all? Well, no. I mean, Jesus is, he's interceding, we're good. No, First John actually says, then we look to Jesus as our advocate, right? First John 2, 1. There he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate from, for us before the Father. Now, think about this. If anyone does sin, speaking to a moment in time when you sin, in this occasion that you sin, then in that moment, you have an advocate in Christ. Now, this word for advocate, super interesting. It's a word for uh, paraclete. You find it in like 1 John, I mean in John 17, uh, speaking of the helper. But it's a word that really uh, is rich in the original and hard to get at in the English. But when you sin, what you find here is that Jesus also is acting as this advocate or paraclete or helper. Someone who so identifies you that he actually takes your cause on as if it was his own. So when the believer sins, we have Jesus advocating for us. Jesus, when you sin, it might feel like he has what? Removed himself from the situation. And you might think that you're gonna remove yourself from Jesus because you know it's awkward. And so I'm just, I'm not gonna pray right now because it feels super weird because who would wanna hang out with me? He's died for my sins, I just sinned again. I'm a failure and so I'm sure that he just would rather me go away and I'm gonna go away. But in that moment, 1 John 2 says no. In that moment, it's not that Jesus has drawn away, it's that Jesus has stepped up in a unique way for you. He has become your advocate. He is fighting for you, your case, pleading your causes as though he, they are his own. And what a better advocate he is than David. He's a better advocate than David. David's life not worthy 
to swage the wrath of God for us. Jesus's was. He's a better advocate for you than you are for yourself. You know, Satan accuses you and tempts you to despair. And Jesus advocates his works on your behalf for your account. You know, we love to advocate for ourselves, right? Wasn't my fault. Like, did you see, like, the circumstances? I mean, this is from the beginning. You remember Adam, right? It's not my fault, God. It's that woman you gave me. What is that? It's blame shifting. It wasn't me. It's self-justifying. It's self-advocating. He's, he's advocating as a sinner before a holy God, saying it's not my fault. The God who knows all things, who sees his very heart. You might say, that seems so dumb, but don't we do that? You know, I had special conditions. We're all sinners in all God. But Jesus is the only advocate who can advocate for us with a 100% success rate. Don't miss this. When you fail, Satan says you're done. But when you fail and sin, Jesus' advocacy on your behalf, it rises higher. He doesn't leave or forsake you. He fights your case for you as his own body. He is our priest king who brings us to God. And he is our advocate who advocates for us in our sins. See, Jesus, he didn't just open the way to God. He is the one who, by moment by moment, keeps it going. I love what John Bunyan, Bunyan said in the works of Christ as advocate. He, he, he showed the difference between advocate and, and priest. And, and here's the way that he uh, shows these differences. He, he writes this, because both are important. He says, Christ as priest goes before, and Christ as advocate comes after. Christ as a priest continually intercedes. Christ as an advocate, in case of great transgressions, pleads. Christ as a priest has need to act always, but Christ as advocate sometimes only. Christ as a priest acts in times of peace, but Christ as advocate in times of broils, turmoils, and sharp contentions. Wherefore, Christ as advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve. And his time is then to arise, to stand up and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into. Christian, do you see the nature of this priest king and this advocate, this intercessor who is for you? He's for us even more than for ourselves. Let's pray.